is Gordy's teaching time. Let's pray for Gordy. Living God, we ask that you would breathe into this room today and breathe into Gordy's body and mind and spirit and soul. Lord, refresh him. Lead his words. Lord, and I just pray for Gordy's heart that you would restore it, heal it, fill it. In Jesus' name, amen. I know it's a little bit of extra challenge, but it's a beautiful day out there. I've just had a great weekend with my, we've had a grandparents babysitting or grandparents gig this weekend. Marcus and Danielle are celebrating their 17th anniversary this weekend, so they're away. So we've had a grandparents gig from Friday and still on, and uh, still going on. And all I can say is I'm very tired very sore and very happy. It's been awesome. Yesterday, uh, we went uh, and played a good old Canadian shinny at Trout Lake. There's this hour they give you where everybody gets a hockey stick and a puck. And they actually organized a game of shinny. There must have been 50 people playing in this game of shinny. You know, normally hockey's five aside. And people of all skills and range of, of, of ability and I'm just saying, I scored the first goal of the game, and I got assist on the second goal of the game, and I fell on my butt about 10 times. Um, but it was so fun. It was just so fun, but I am so sore. <laughs> I just, I can hardly move. So I'm on Advil, and I'm another drug, so I take no responsibility for what I say today. <laughs> That's right. We can't wait to hear. But it was so fun. We went to laser bowling on Friday night. Oh, we went to Star Wars last night. Yeah, we went down to the, the, the new Star Wars. Huh? No spoilers. And, and, um, and, uh, yeah, so I'll try really hard to give sermon illustrations from Star Wars without spoilers today. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's amazing. Just what, what a gift children are. And uh, uh, just to be reminded of that. I mean, I knew that, but wow, 24-7. Been a long time, eh, since we did that. Um, when we used to go to Switzerland, we'd have three weeks of that. <laughs> I'd, gaze, I'd lose 10 pounds, and it was awesome. Anyway, so today I want to talk, I, I felt tempted to call this sermon, What About the Guys? You know, because a lot of Advent uh, is, is really from the perspective of a woman, and so it should be. Obviously, uh, Mary uh, was a key part of this, um, and she had to face things that provide insight for all of us. But it was just really striking to me that the, the, the Advent reading uh, for today features Joseph, the, the husband of Mary. At the time of the story, of course, they were just engaged. Now, I'll, I'll explain a little bit about that, but I think it really speaks, again, to all of us, not just men,
but I think there are some unique uh, challenges that Joseph faced as a man that are helpful for us to understand this season of waiting. So don't forget that we're now in the fourth Sunday of Advent, as you saw by the lighting of the four candles. We lit hope today, peace, love, uh, joy, and love. And Advent is all about, just as a reminder, about waiting for Christmas. We're not used to waiting in this high-tech, high-speed age. Waiting feels too much like doing nothing, and that's just not cool. It's cool to be busy, because if you're busy, you look important, right? And we don't want to be unimportant, so let's look busy. And we don't like Advent because it's a bit like Lent, isn't it? It's a season of lament, and we don't like lament because it means we're admitting we don't have it all together. It means we're admitting that we haven't arrived yet and that we need help. And it's a prophetical lament as the world longs for God to come of the world gone wrong. There's no justice in the streets. I ran into Donald McPherson, my neighbor, last night, who, is, who has brought the Four Pillars approach to Vancouver and is fighting for a, a just drug policy that would just deal with this pain in our city. And the laws that, that address drug addiction are so unjust. And lament is a cry for God to come and bring justice, that he would act, that God would act. But the waiting is essential because what we're doing, we're doing what needs to be done our souls become still and contemplative. It provides a stillness and a calm that forms the core of our being. And it brings patience in the stillness of our soul, not so much so that we uh, can get God to come, because God already has come. God is already acting, but we don't see God because of anger and anxiety and drivenness and busyness. So it's not that Jesus said God's always at work. So it's not about getting God to come so much as seeing the God who's always coming to us. So the story of the origins of Advent, as I said last week in our little trivia quiz, comes from Germany. When the school teacher noticed the kids were always kind of impatient about Christmas. So he invented this candle lighting ceremony in a circle. And actually, originally, it started with every day. And I think the Germans still do that. Our, our German homestay has this Advent uh, calendar for every day. They're, they're doing something. And, and it was to teach children to the patience of waiting for, for Christmas. And we, we lit joy and love and peace and um, a hope. And we really need these this time of year. They really seem, uh, there seems to be a lack of them. There's a lack of hope, a lack of peace, a lack of joy, a lack of love. Uh, I was meditating on this sermon, and I felt such a peace on me as I had to go out and do some kind of errand in my car. And as soon as I got out in the traffic, I could just feel the contrast to what I'd just been experiencing. People were mad at me because I'm driving too slow. Do I look like a, an old grandpa? <laughs> oh, thank you. It, it, 
it just seemed like everybody was in a hurry, and everybody was upset, and everybody was mad. And I just was enjoying God, you know. It was good. Life was good. And uh, so it's, 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 we need these so much all the time, but especially this time of year. And today we lit the candle of love, and our Advent reading from Isaiah is the first place that the Christmas name for Jesus appears. What's the Christmas name? Emmanuel, God with us. And our gospel reading is from Matthew. Today we look at the Advent from the perspective of Joseph. And so much of the Advent story, as we said, is from the perspective of, of Mary. But there's some important things that Joseph faced that I think are part, again, for all of us, not just guys, but for all of us in pre preparing our ourselves to be able to see and, and notice what God is doing. So let's look at this beautiful text together. I love Matthew 1. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I'll explain a little bit. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So Joseph's in this quandary. Now let me explain that uh, betrothal or engagement in, in the Hebrew times uh, in the ancient Near East was very much like Advent because what would happen is they would have a little ceremony as if they were getting married, but they're not fully married yet, but it's like a betrothal. It's, it's as, as, as strict and as binding as marriage. And then they wouldn't see each other often for a year. They'd be separated in different houses. In fact, the only correspondence between the bride and the groom would be through what John referred to, the friend of the bridegroom. So it could very likely be this unknown friend of the bridegroom who notified Joseph, ah, we have a problem here. And, and so Advent or waiting or longing for Joseph, which was, was, was this hope that he held and this joy of an anticipation of being married to the love of his life ends up being crushed and smashed to pieces by this news. Has that ever happened to you? Where you've had hope, you've been longing for something and expecting it, and all of a sudden, bam, those expectations are smashed. And this is what happened with, with Joseph. And it's no accident that Matthew actually puts this story at the end of a whole bunch of scandals that he actually refers to through the genealogy of Jesus. Now, genealogy, of course, was the family line of Jesus. And Matthew, as a good Jew, wanted to demonstrate the word uh, Jesus the Messiah. A lot of people think Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not. <laughs> Jesus, uh, uh, when they say the Christ, it's Christos, which means anointed one. Remember in the Old Testament when they anointed a king or a priest, they'd pour oil on that person. And so the most anointed of all was the Messiah. That was the ultimate anointed one. And Matthew, with, without any hesitation, says, Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah. But then he, he goes and he tells the family line of Jesus, which is a royal line, all the way back, all the way back to Abraham. And he shows that he's a good Jew, but he's not only a good Jew, but he's a good royal line of the family of David. But that whole genealogy is just full of scandal. 
It's full of scandal. Like, so, so he's going along and he says, oh yeah, and Judah had so-and-so by Tamar. Well, what, who's Tamar? Well, Tamar was Judah's, um, who was what, the fourth child of, of Jacob? So uh, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of, of Judah who, who posed as a prostitute so that she could have children that, that Judah had promised her and he didn't come through. So she posed as a prostitute and Judah paid her as a prostitute and ended up having in the family line of Jesus. The story moves on, moving right along. We're talking about a soap opera here. Then the next one is a prostitute named Rahab. And then we move on from there and we go, there's a, David had Solomon by a woman named Bathsheba, who wasn't his wife. And, and Ruth, the Moabitess, I mean, it just goes, it's, and then you go, well, why is Matthew picking on the women? Well, he's not. I'll tell you why he's not. Because he mentions Solomon. Has anybody ever heard of Solomon? Okay, he was the son of Jesse like David, but he was also the son-in-law of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was a bad dude, and so did Solomon end up being a bad dude, having 2,000 wives, a sex addict, twisted, and then he mentions Ammon and Manasseh. Do you know what those guys were like? They were awful. They were awful. Yeah. And that, that doesn't mean full of awe. It means awful, all right? They were just bad, bad dudes. So Matthew, there's something special that Matthew loves about this genealogy of Jesus that ends up in a scandal with Jesus' own story. Why do you think Matthew's so bought into that one? Think about it. Did you know that Matthew was in the, when Jesus called him, he was in the category of sinners that you love to hate. How many know there's sinners where it's cool to forgive? You know, the, the victims, the oppressed, the abused. It's, it's easy to care about those people. But what about the abusers? What about the oppressors? Well, Matthew was in that category. He was, he was part of the category of sinners that were not cool to love. They were not cool to forgive. In fact, he was a thug. Tax collectors were thugs because the Romans didn't like collecting taxes on their own. So they, got, they would hire uh, crooked Jews to do their dirty work for them. And Jews would actually go to Rome, rich Jews would go to jo Rome and make bids to be the tax collectors. And the guy that got the highest bid was picked by Rome to do the dirty work and he would act like a thug. He'd walk into somebody's shop with two big guys and say, you know, uh, be sad if something bad happened to you if I didn't get a thousand bucks today. And so there was, they were extortionists and uh, they were hated by the Jews. They were out outcasts. They were not allowed to be witnesses in court. In fact, if you were a tax collector, it actually caused shame on your own family. It's the same as a sexual predator would bring shame on their family. It was the same thing back then. And, uh, and so one day he's, he's doing what he does and Jesus walks by near Capernaum and looks at him and he says, Matthew, this isn't you. Follow me and I'll show you who you really are. And I don't know, I don't know how long he'd been hearing Jesus because we, we know that Jesus lived in Capernaum and Matthew was probably familiar with him. But all of a sudden he saw all that shame and all that garbage and all that twistedness, he saw a way out with that call. And he got up and followed Jesus. And he was in the 12. 
He's in the 12, man. I mean, that's the elite of the elite of the apostles. Man. So Matthew was pretty thrilled with this. So this, the scandal continues. Mary was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And Luke, of course, explains what happened in, in, the, in his gospel we've been looking at over the last few weeks. But Joseph hasn't received that explanation from the angel. Isn't it interesting that the angel kind of prepared Mary, but didn't, hey, what gives here, you know? <laughs> Give me a break, right? I think the guy should get a little filled in on things too, right? So, but God, there's something about what God's doing here that I think is so important for our, our becoming like Christ and giving place for Emmanuel. Um, in Joseph's hopeful waiting, as said, it was hard enough, but now his heart is, is broken by this news from Mary. Either she's lying or worse yet, she's crazy when, he, when she gives the explanation. He's wondering if he should have her committed. And of course, he now has this dilemma because he, it says that he was a righteous man or faithful to the law. Let me explain the significance of faithful to the law. We're not talking about somebody who's like a lawyer who's really committed to the law and wants to obey the law. For a Jewish person to be loyal to the law was equal to be, uh, to Torah was equal to being loyal to God. So he wanted to be loyal to God. And yet he knew that if he was loyal to God and fulfilled the literal law, she would be publicly humiliated and stoned to death. So he's got this, this dilemma. And as a Jew, as a Davidic Jew, as a royal part of the family line, they took pride, by the way, in holiness and family purity because they believed they were to bring the Messiah. And so his hope of bringing Messiah into the world was crushed by this. Not just... Not just the marriage, but his hope of being part of, was crushed by, being part of the, the bringing the Messiah was crushed by Mary's actions in his mind. But he loved Mary. And he didn't want her to be harmed and shamed publicly. He didn't want that to happen. But he felt that to compromise, or to accept her as his wife, was a terrible compromise of his faithfulness to God and the Torah. But he didn't want to hurt her. But he wanted to be loyal to God. But he didn't want to hurt her. But he wanted to be loyal to God. Have you ever felt that? Isn't that our, our life? Isn't that the story of our life? Don't we deal with that all the time? That dilemma, that wrestling with what's right and yet what's loving. And then we look at Jesus' life and ministry and then you realize, I was reading this morning through the Gospels. My, my Gospel reading was when he, he healed the, the crippled man on the Sabbath. And they're bugging him about that. And he says, well, tell me what's lawful, to save life or to kill on the Sabbath. Right? So, so Jesus himself in his own life and ministry. And I have felt that that's probably one of, this is probably one of the greatest tensions that I face in pastoral ministry. This, this tension of being faithful to God's standards and holiness and righteousness and yet loving people. But that was what Jesus came to do. He came to stand in that gap. And it's costly. It's painful. And Joseph felt the full brunt of that pain. And the choice he finally made, the, the, the only way he could resolve this, was he found this little loophole in the law. And it really was kind of invented by the Pharisees. So he kind of took it to his advantage. 
And that is he would find a, a secret way out of the marriage, quietly divorce her, so she wouldn't be, and her family wouldn't be publicly shamed and disgraced. It was what I would call harm reduction. It was the harm reduction route. I love harm reduction. It's not the final answer, but it's a doorway. It's a, it's a way. It's a road. It's not the destination. Harm reduction is never the destination, but it's a doorway. It's a, it's a road. My son would be dead without harm reduction, and most of us would be too. In some way or other, we've all had to have harm reduction. God calls it mercy. Mercy is where you don't get what you deserve. Right? And that is the foundation of our, our you know, what Sandra's dad felt. It's, that's the foundation of our church. It's mercy. I'm here because of mercy. I should have been dead at the age of 30. I, every day, I just live as, it's a gift. I receive it as a gift. I'm 62 years old. I'm still alive. I thought I was going to be dead at age 30. Do you know how good that feels? So, <clears throat> Joseph chose the way of harm reduction out of love. He said, I'm going to, I don't get anything, but I know that God is love. And I'm going to stay in love. And I'm going to do what... I can do the only thing that I can see through there. And that's when God intervened with insight. That's when God came and brought revelation. And it was in the form of a dream. And after he'd considered this, that word considered is very strong. It's like wrestle. An angel of the Lord. Why did the angel wait? You know, what took him so long? The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Remember these wrestlings, it's like the oyster, you know, the pearl. There's just this, this, this working in our hearts and God expands us to have God's heart. And you just don't get that by being whatever. It's costly. This is Calvary love, incarnational love. And he's just, and it's literally, Joe, you, you think Mary gave birth? Joseph gave birth. He was expanding. God was expanding his heart and soul. When Jesus was born, we knew it. We know there was no room for him in the inn. But Joseph had made room for him in his heart. So it didn't matter. And he fought for that little guy. So the angel appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. I love that. Just reminds him who he is. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her, is, this is the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. Do not be afraid. What was he so afraid of? She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Their problem wasn't the Babylonians. Problem wasn't the Romans. But the problem was what they kept, what they kept doing to themselves. And he was going to resolve that. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. So, Matthew steps in now and gives a commentary. He says, all this, 
This wasn't the angel who quoted this. This is Matthew. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, all my life I read, ah, yeah, that's cool. Jesus, you know, was born of a virgin Mary. That's fulfillment. Actually, the context of Isaiah has nothing to do with a virgin birth. The, the Hebrew word for virgin in the book of Isaiah is just a young woman who hasn't been married yet. So it's not like really a big miracle, you know, from our perspective. But Matthew grabs onto that and just applies it to Jesus. How can he do that? How can he get away with that? What's going on here? Well, we are getting a lesson here in the way that the early church interpreted the Bible. What would happen? Remember, they didn't have the New Testament, right? The first gospel, what was written, 70, 60, 70 AD? It was pretty late. Like Most of them were like in the seniors' home by then, right? So what was their Bible? Their Bible was the Old Testament, right? And the oral stories of Jesus that they heard from the apostles. Paul started writing a few letters a little bit earlier, but the Gospels themselves was way later. So the way that they interpreted the Bible is that they would look at the Old Testament and they would look at it through the lenses of the life of Jesus. Now, who taught them to do that? Jesus. <laughs> Remember on the road to Emmaus? It says he opened up the scriptures and showed them through the law and the prophets everything about himself. You know, Jesus was a good evangelist. He led people to himself, right? <laughs> and, and, and so what Jesus did, they just took that on, and they did that themselves. And uh, it's beautiful because we're seeing an example of that in this passage of scripture. But what's Matthew doing? This has nothing to do with the virgin birth as we know it. Why does he apply this? Well... We read it in our Advent candle reading. We read the text that, that Matthew is quoting from here. And the context was that uh, Judah, which was the southern kingdom, was being attacked by this alliance of, of enemies. There was the Syrians and the northern kingdom. They were all... And they, it, it was dark. It was bad. It was, it was not, not good. Not good. And so... Um, they were threatened with this invasion, and the king, Ahaz, at the time, was alarmed. And Isaiah described them as this. The hearts of the people were shaken as trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. You ever felt that way? Your heart is just like shaken, like trees by the wind. That's how they were just shaken, you know? And uh, so Eli Isaiah gets a word from God to go to the king, and he says, say to him, now listen to these words. These are for you guys. Listen carefully. And Matthew is speaking to us from this text in, in his gospel. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, don't lose heart. Boy, that's a good advent admonition, isn't it? Can I say it again? Be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, don't lose heart. Now remember, this Ahaz is a scoundrel. He's not the greatest moral king that ever lived. Yet God's giving him encouragement and hope, saying, calling him out of his fear, because a lot of our crap is out of fear that we do, right? A lot of the crap stuff we do comes out of fear, right? So he's saying, hey, get to the root of this. 
be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, you're doing bad stuff. All you need to do is come back into trust, gentle trust. So the prophet paints this dark scenario that Ahaz had painted in his own mind. They plotted your ruin. They're saying, let's invade Judah. Let's tear it apart. Divide it among yourself. You ever feel that way? Everything's falling. It's all going to fall apart. They've plotted our ruin. Yet this is what the Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered as a people. So he says to him, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. I love what the message says there. If you don't stand in faith, you won't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> I love that. Unless your faith is firm, I cannot make you firm. What God is saying is hold your nerve, hold your nerve. Because if you don't stand in faith, you'll do something dumb. And God was worried that this king was going to go to the king of Assyria and get help from a human help that would end up being worse for him in the end, and they were. That's what happened. Assyria. He, went, he was tempted to go get help from the king of Assyria. So Isaiah says, don't do that. And, and, and he's begging him. He's begging him, don't do this. Don't go to the king of Assyria. God will deliver you. Please, just ask me a sign. Ask God for a sign. God wants to give you a sign that you will, so you will trust him. And then the king gets real pious. Oh, I'm not supposed to tempt the Lord. That's literally what happened. He, he puts on this pious act. But really, it was a front for his own fear. It was a front for his own unbelief and his unwillingness to be vulnerable and to trust God alone. He wanted to take things into his own hands. So, he said, no, I'm not going to ask. So Isaiah says, well, I'll tell you what. God's going to offer you a sign. Here's the sign. The sign is, a virgin will have a child. And before the child is even old enough to know the right and the wrong, you know all those things you're shaking about right now? They'll be gone. That was the sign. We don't know who the virgin was. It could have been Isaiah's fiance. It could have been the king's fiance. It could have been a young woman in the court. We don't know. But it seems like it was just this young woman that was there. And it was a time prophecy. He was saying, just hang in there. You know, Within a, within a few years, when this child is, is old enough to know right, right from wrong, probably still, you know, four or five, they'll be gone. Everything you're so upset about now, you'll be, it'll be a distant memory if you'll just trust. Is that good news? So, I just love this because six, seven hundred years later, Matthew reads the story, and he, and he hears the story of the, and all of a sudden he realizes that prophecy that Isaiah gave, it applied right there, but it all of a sudden unfolded to a meaning that nobody had comprehended at the time. But the principle was still the same. Are you going to trust your own devices, or are you going to trust God? Are you going to trust Emmanuel, or are you going to try to take things into your own hands with fear and manipulation? And control. What was the fear he had? It was of losing control. I think I've shared this example, uh, and it's not the, this example is not original to me. I've just read it in some of my spiritual direction reading. But we often like, liken Christianity to climbing a mountain. It's kind of like we've got to climb this mountain, right? 
And that's a good analogy for some things, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, whatever. But actually, true Christianity is, it's like climbing the steep mountain and someone saying to you, fall backwards and trust me and I will catch you. That is Christianity. That is what God is asking us to do, to trust him, to give up control, right? And so Emmanuel is all about God with us and not taking things into our own hands. So I love this. Joseph, uh, when he woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So we as the Christians believe strongly in the virgin birth of Jesus. And the reason we do... I don't buy this example of saying, well, it's because Jesus had to be sinless. That wasn't the point. Jesus could have been sinless as God, no matter who he was born. But there, it was important as a teaching that he was God, that he was God with us, the incarnation of God. This is the foundation of our faith, that God is with us. So God promised Isaiah... Back then, what seems so big will be gone. And this, this woman's going to have a child. This woman is going to have a child, back in Isaiah's day, as a statement of the future. As a promise of the future. They said when Stalin died in Russia, everybody started having babies. Woo! We're going to have a future. I've had so much talk with young people, teenagers, who are so concerned about climate change. And as I'm talking to them, I say to them, you know what? You are the hope of the future. You are. What, what you're saying, what you're thinking. And guess what? You're not alone. I grew up, I grew up and so much of my understanding of the second coming was based on fear. And I thought Sandra did such a great job addressing that the first week. Rather than the second coming being the blessed hope for me, it was the blessed dread. I was constantly in fear of missing the rapture. And I constantly heard sermons of the earth soon to be destroyed by a comet, a meteor, or a Soviet nuclear strike. Can you imagine a 9 or 10-year-old kid hearing that diet of stuff? So it created in me a lack of planning for the long haul. It's why I didn't go to seminary when I, when I graduated from high school. I finally graduated when I was 59 or something. I can't remember how old I was, but... Because I began to... My worldview got changed, Right? So this, this whole idea of Advent is about hope. It's about that God is at work. And so I tell these young people, you know what? God's at work. God is coming. And so this had a greater fulfillment than, than Isaiah could ever have imagined. And, and Matthew captured this, that God is with us. And this is the incredible thing. This is why the virgin birth is so important is because God made himself dependent and vulnerable. This very thing about faith, God made himself dependent and vulnerable. Dependent on the body of a teenage girl, could have been like 15, 16 years old. In, in, in the face of a hostile world, that vulnerability is how God came into the world. And that vulnerability is how God comes to us, God with us. 
Some people say, well, you know, the Old Testament was about law and performance. The New Testament is about faith. Actually, the Old Testament was just about, about faith as well. Here's where I think the, the, the difference is. How many have ever felt that sometimes faith is kind of more like works? It's kind of like, if I believe enough, then I'll please God. But that just becomes another performance thing. Here's what Emmanuel does. Emmanuel says, in order to receive life, you have, you have to receive the gift that's been given to you. But how many has a, have had little kids that get a gift given to them at Christmas time, and they need a little help unwrapping the gift? They, you know, they go, Daddy, I can't open this thing, right? So what do you do? You come alongside, you kind of help them unwrap that gift. And that's what Emmanuel does. You know, because some of us, we didn't grow up believing very good. We didn't, faith wasn't a natural response for us. But Emmanuel comes alongside and he says to us, I'll help you unwrap your gift. You're not in this alone. You got fear? You, you can't believe right now? That's okay. Let me just do some believing for you for a while. I'll carry you. And I'll bring some people around you who will carry you until you can find faith again. I went for two years in my, my nervous breakdown. I couldn't believe that I was saved. I believed with all my heart that I was going to spend eternity in hell. I had no hope. But I had to just hang on to people around me who believed for me. What a gift. What a gift. So, let's conclude this thing before we all get too hungry to even pay attention. When hopes are crushed, God invites us to choose the way of love over fear, making room for God who is and will always be Emmanuel. God with us, God for us, and God in us. When I say in us, there's, there's, there's something about God's incarnation in you that is through you. The world needs to see. And as a church community, we are a unique expression. I mean, I think that's what Sandra's papa was experiencing last week. There's a unique expression of Emmanuel that comes because of who we are together. What a gift. So as we pray and reflect on these things, where has waiting and hoping resulted in unresolved disappointment for you? Where have your hopes been crushed like Joseph, either in the past or the present? The story isn't finished. It's not done yet. What are some of the underlying fears that have accompanied this disappointment? You know, sometimes in spiritual direction, and I notice this in my own life as I reflect in my journal, there's fears we have, but then you go, there's an underlying fear. Like maybe there's fear that I'm not going to have enough money to pay my rent at the end of the month or, you know, for the grocery bill or, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a physical health issue that I'm dealing And there's fear around that, Right? But often I find there's underlying fears beneath those fears. And those fears have to do with, I'm alone. I'm alone in this. And that's where Emmanuel comes to that deep underlying fear that it's all up to me. It's not. You're not alone. And what might God's invitations be to you to choose the way of love over fear, making room for Emmanuel? even if it's a bit scandalous to some of your um, scruples, like Joseph. It was scandalous, wasn't it, for to him to embrace Mary? It was scandalous. He had to violate his own conscience to some degree for the sake of love.
Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, thank you for this beautiful story that we can just share and share in and enjoy and wrestle with and identify with in so many ways. Lord, we just confess we're control freaks. We're control freaks. It's hard for us to let go. It's hard for us to trust. It's not our natural way. But I'm so grateful that you are a God who comes as we just wait, still ourselves, that you come and say, hey, can I help you unwrap that gift? Can I help you? Just to believe. Paul said in, in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I now live by the faith of. Scholars have argued about that word, but it literally means not just faith in Christ, but the faith of Christ in you. Is that good news? So just receive his faith today. Let him unwrap the present with you. You're not alone. He's Emmanuel, God with you. As you walk through this season, through this time, and all will be well. All will be well. So I just want to bless you. Why don't we stand? If you can. So I bless you with Advent hope, Advent peace, Advent joy, Advent love today. I bless you with the love that dispels all fear. Even the deepest root fear of being left alone, that love to dispel all fear. And we rejoice in hope, knowing that hope does not disappoint because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I bless you to receive the Holy Spirit, that what is in the midst of your life, what that dilemma and challenge of your life and heart is that it is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Fear not. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. And it is a good work. And the work that He's begun, He will finish. He will finish.